You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. My God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I would guess that most of us here, if not all of us, are aware that the Lord Jesus Christ uttered the same words as he hung on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as Jesus said these words, what he was doing is he was claiming this entire psalm that we're getting ready to read. He was claiming this whole psalm for himself. Whenever he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, this is my psalm. You guys remember that psalm that David wrote? It's mine. I'm fulfilling it. It was all about me. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this or not. I think some of you might be. Uh, In the Jewish tradition of the time, to quote the beginning of a text was to imply the entirety of that text that you were quoting from. So Jesus wasn't just referencing Psalm 22, verse 1. He he was referencing the entire psalm. And this might sound kind of weird to us. How do you you just say one line and you're referencing the whole psalm? Um, This would be like us if you were praying with a friend about a sin that you had committed... Um, and, and you were repenting, and they had brought you to repentance by God's grace, and you began to pray together, and then you got up from praying and looked at your friend and said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, right? Your friend would understand that you were referencing everything that that hymn stands for, everything that it says, right? God's grace is mine. He has allowed me to see my sin. He has shown me the Savior. I have peace with him, and I owe him all of my praise, right? That would be a given, just from you quoting that first line of that hymn, So again, Christ, in saying this first verse from the cross, he claims that this psalm was about him and his work and what was to come. So it's actually a prophetic psalm that describes the future suffering of the Messiah and the blessedness that results from it. But I just want to be clear about something uh, just from the beginning before we get down into this text. Uh, There is some debate on whether or not this psalm originally had anything to do with King David, who wrote the psalm. Uh, Some people think that David was using really over-the-top metaphorical language to describe his own suffering at some point in his life. And then a millennium later, the Lord Jesus comes and fulfills the psalm in very literal terms. So it had something to do with David, highly symbolic language, then Christ literally fulfilled it. Uh, I disagree with that view. I disagree with that view. Uh, but let me, let me say this, there are good... Good men on both sides of the debate for certain. I'm taking more of the the old school Protestant view on this. You'll find with like Charles Spurgeon, Matthew Henry. Um, I think that this psalm is exclusively about Jesus. Um, And I don't think it has anything to do with anything that happened in King David's life. And I think that because there is no correlation between what David describes here and anything that happened in his own life. There's no correlation here. Uh, Furthermore, as you'll see at the end of the psalm, Uh, The suffering of the one in the beginning of Psalm 22 uh, has worldwide implications by the end of the psalm. And I don't see any event in David's life having this kind of eternal worldwide implication. So I think that this psalm is all about Jesus and always was about Jesus. Uh, So from what I can gather, King David, who is called a prophet in Romans 4, I believe it is, he's called a prophet by the Apostle Paul, David received insight from the Holy Spirit into the work of the Messiah and then penned this psalm describing what the Christ would suffer. And again, I can't stress this enough, the glory that was to come from it. We're not just going to stop with the suffering of Christ this evening. But just to come clean, my goal in preaching this to you this evening is not to teach you anything new. 
In fact, if you learn anything new from this psalm, I have done an awful job for the last five years. My goal is not to teach you anything new. My prayer this past week has been that as we walk line by line through this psalm, that God would give us fresh insight and appreciation for what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's my goal. That we would, get, we would look at this with fresh eyes. And I say that because I, I think sometimes we hear the gospel so often that we almost become numb to it. I need, at least I know that's my own wickedness. That's my own personal like, coldness of heart. Is that you hear it so often it's almost commonplace. And it's texts like this one that will smack us in the face and wake us up and show us the great love of our Savior and the price of our redemption. The price that we so often and foolishly take for granted. So without any more for introduction, Psalm 22. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and glow over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. 
Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the truth of the scriptures, for the prophecies found in them that we might see them fulfilled in Christ. God, I pray that you would give us fresh insight to the cross, that we might behold Christ crucified with the eye of faith and that our affections might be stirred up to you by that. Please do a work of grace in our hearts that we might see Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen. All right, so as I said in the introduction, I believe this psalm is exclusively about Jesus Christ. And after we've just read that, I think you can see why that I would say that. Um, Specifically, this psalm is about his sufferings, his pain, his thoughts, his feelings. Right? So we're we're actually given incredible insight into the suffering of Christ crucified. But also at the end, we see the glory that was to come from his death and resurrection. I think that this psalm can be divided into a few different sections. Um, The first section would be verse 1 through 21a, where we see the suffering and faith of Christ. In verse 21b, we see the rescue of Christ. In verse 22, we see the praise of Christ. And then in verses 23 through 31, we see King David declaring what is to come from the work of Christ. Right, so what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through this psalm together verse by verse and see what Christ has done. Right, and don't worry, I'm not going to make five minutes worth of comments on every single verse. I'm not going to keep you here for two and a half hours going through this psalm, though I could. Um, we won't do that, though. So verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. This is the cry of the Lord Jesus. Why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I want to be clear about something. Jesus was not confused about why he was on the cross. He's not crying out from lack of knowledge, right? He didn't didn't say this out of a lack of understanding. If you consider what we read in the Gospels, Jesus had prophesied himself many times that he would lay down his life for the sheep, right? That he would be killed at the hands of wicked men. He told Nicodemus that as the serpent was, the bronze serpent was raised up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be raised up for all the people to look upon, right? He had made reference to his own crucifixion. He knew what was going to happen. Furthermore, the Old Testament had said many times that the Messiah was going to suffer for the sins of God's people. Jesus knew why he was there and what he was there for. Jesus knew that he had become the sin bearer. I love that's one of the titles that we can give Christ. He's the sin bearer. And he knew that's what he would become. He knew that all of the sins of all of those who would ever believe had been laid upon him. He knew that he was being punished under the full weight and white hot wrath of God for the sins of his elect. He knew that's what was happening in this moment. But if he knew that that's what's going on, why would he cry out, why have you forsaken me? I believe he said this 
Because for the first and only time in eternity, the perfect Son of God had divine anger and displeasure pointed at Him. For the first and only time, Jesus Christ feels the displeasure of God. Right? Consider this. Jesus had never had sin credited to His account. Like We walk around as sinners. We understand. We walk around all the time with the guilt and weight of our own iniquities upon us. Jesus had never felt that. And in this moment, he's being charged with sin. He's never felt shame before. He's never felt guilt before. Now he feels it. This kind of suffering had never happened before, nor would it ever happen again. This is a unique suffering. He cries out this way because God is treating him as if he were a sinner. Verse 2 tells us that Jesus cries out for God to help, but God refuses to come to his aid. God says, no, I'm not going to help you right now. The Father is punishing the Son. Hear me on this. He's punishing the Son with no mercy. That's an astounding sentence to say. The Father was being merciless toward the Son. I will not come to your aid. I will not help you. My God, why have you forsaken me? No mercy toward the Son. Just as the Father would show an unrepentant sinner. The exact same wrath that He would show us that we deserve for our law-breaking and our wickedness. No mercy for the Son. So Jesus cries out this way because in His humanity, Jesus had been utterly forsaken by God. In His humanity, He had been utterly forsaken by God. This cry is as if Jesus is gasping out in shock and in pain because he had never felt pain like this. Again, he had never had sin charged to his account. He had never felt displeasure from God. He had never felt guilt or shame. And now he has become the sin bearer and is being treated as a sinner. This suffering was unique. Not just unique to him, but no one would ever, had ever or will ever feel this amount of wrath from God. Consider this. Whenever Christ offers himself up as the propitiation for our sins, what happens? God credits him with every single individual sin that every single individual who would ever believe on him is credited to Christ. Not just this vague generality of sin or this vague atonement, but consider the amount of sins that you have committed thus far in your life and how many more sins you are likely to commit before you die. All of them. Myriads and myriads of sin placed upon Christ for untold multitudes of people. He wasn't suffering for one man's sin. He was suffering for all of his church. This is unique. No one had ever experienced pain like this. Words fail us. that We don't have words to describe this kind of suffering of the wrath of God. But I want to point out something to you that shows this. While Jesus was treated as a sinner, he was not a sinner himself. He says, my God... My God. He says it three times in the two verses. My God. He still professes His faith. He's still owning the Father. You are still my God. He's still expressing His trust and relationship to the Father. And in His humanity, the Father was His God. Right? Jesus wasn't an atheist. Right? In His humanity, the Father is His God. He's saying, you are still my God. This is astounding. He's the perfect sufferer. Who could endure wrath like this and still express love and trust to God as he's undergoing the wrath of God? 
He goes on, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Yet you are holy. Yet you are holy. Here Jesus expresses the holiness and praiseworthiness of God. Consider this. He's saying, yet you are holy. God isn't doing anything wrong right now. Jesus is not charging God with any kind of injustice whenever he says, why, are you forsake, why have you forsaken me? He's not charging God with doing anything wrong. It's as if Christ is saying, I have taken on the people's sin. I am now sin for them. And I am being punished for it. The Father is punishing me. This is right. This is holy. This is what a holy God does. Sin must be paid for. He is still worthy to be praised for his holiness and righteousness. He's not crediting God with injustice. He's saying God is doing what is right and fitting right now because I am the sin bearer for my people in this moment. And then in verses 4 and 5, Jesus continues to express his trust. He's saying the people of God have trusted you and you've always taken care of them. And they were not put to shame. I won't be put to shame either. I trust that you will see me through by the end of this. I trust you will rescue me. Your people have always been rescued by you. You will do what is right. This is perfect faith. This is perfect faith from the Lord Jesus. From the cross, he expresses trust in God's faithfulness. Again, who could endure God's wrath and at the same time express such love and respect and trust in the one who is afflicting them? This tension is, is, is astounding. Only the Son of God could suffer this way. And then the mockery and scorn of Jesus is laid before us in verses 6 through 8. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let the Lord rescue him, for he delights in the Lord. That's how that reads. Jesus, just verse 6, he, count, he counts himself as a worm here. He considers himself as something less than human in how he is being treated right now. Something that is stepped on and despised by men. Charles Spurgeon said that Jesus likens himself to a wriggling, writhing piece of flesh that is hated. The Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, treated as if he were nothing, counts himself as less than human in how he's being treated. And then he goes on and says, those who see him on the cross pass by and mock him. They make faces at him. The King James says they shoot their lip out at him. They make faces at him. They laugh at his suffering. This is cruelty. Pure cruelty. A dying man who had done no wrong and only ever loved and pointed people to the Father, told them the truth, showed kindness to them, healed them, had compassion on them, now dying and being shamed by the very people he created. The pain in Christ's heart is unbearable at this point. And you know this, mockery always increases inner turmoil whenever you suffer. To have someone come by and scoff at you and mock you always increases the agony. They say, if he really knows God, then let God save him. If he really is the Son of God, then let God take him off the cross. They're mocking his relationship to God. They're mocking his faith in God. 
They're calling him abandoned by the Father, hated by God. They're calling him a liar and casting doubt on his relationship with God. And hear me on this, this might make us a little bit uncomfortable. But as regards his humanity, Christ was truly human. He would have been susceptible to someone casting doubt upon his relationship to God. Not saying that he believed them by the end of it. But that would have cut him to the heart as a man. Imagine how you feel if someone, if you said, I trust God will see me through this. And they say, God hates you. You don't know him. They'll cut you to the quick. He's susceptible to this. He's human. What's astounding is they say all of this with the tongue that he created. Using the breath that he just allowed them to breathe, he allows this to continue on. But then in the face of this mockery and doubt, Jesus again affirms his trust and his intimacy with God. Verse 9 and 10, he says, Yet, so in spite of what they're saying, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Jesus uses covenantal language. It's as if he's saying, I know you, Father, and you know me. I still trust you no matter what that they're saying, no matter how much they might mock me. I trust you. And with regard to his humanity, Jesus is saying, I've known you since I was born. Since I came from my mother's womb, I've trusted in you. I've loved and been loved by you since I took my first breath. You are my father still, and I am your true son. You are still my God. No matter what the mockers say, this is true. I trust you. And again, I wrote this down three different times in my notes. No one has ever suffered this perfectly. No one suffers like this. Perfect faith, showing his total innocence. Not a sin found in him, not a charge of injustice towards God. This is the proof that Christ was no sinner. He continues to reaffirm his trust in the God who afflicts him. Verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Here we see a devastating statement from our Lord. He says, there is none to help me. He is alone on this cross. He's alone. And he asked the Father to be near to him because everyone else had abandoned him. His disciples have scattered. Everyone hates him. He is alone. He's enduring this pain all by himself. Often, I don't think we consider the loneliness of the cross. Alone. But he had to do it by himself. He had to do it by himself. Jesus was the only one who could make atonement for sinners. Right? Just as the high priest under the old covenant went to the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement to sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant, just like that happened, the great high priest Jesus had to undergo this slaughter and wrath by himself. No one could go with him. He must Do it alone if God is going to receive all glory in the salvation of His people. He must do it by Himself. But the loneliness must be astounding. Forsaken by both God and man. Mocked, enduring the wrath of God and scorn of all men alone. He continues to describe his situation. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. So Jesus then describes his enemies as wild animals that have him encircled. They have him surrounded. 
And Jesus is like a lamb being encircled by lions that aim to kill him. He has no one on his side. He's describing his helplessness here. Utter helplessness. It's like the hymn that, that's sung for, for a long time. Many hands were raised to wound him and none were interposed to save. Encircled by his enemies. But then the anguish of Christ is laid before us in verses 14 and 15. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus calls himself a potsherd. If you're not familiar with that, it's a broken piece of pottery that's been dried out by the sun. It's worthless. It has no real use. Broken, busted up. He is saying, I am shattered on this cross. I am broken to pieces in agony. There is nothing left of me. He says, I'm poured out like water, like a drink offering to God. There is nothing left of me. I've been completely emptied. Emotionally, he says, his heart is not strong within him. It's melted like wax, right? He has, no, he has no inner strength to face this. He says, I have nothing. I'm wax on the inside. He can, he, he can hardly speak. He's so, he's so beaten by this. He says he has been laid in the dust of death. And he says, you have laid me in the dust of death. He's saying he's been laid by God. His death is imminent. There's nothing that's going to stop this. And it comes by God's hand. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. This is a clear reference to his crucifixion. Right? It's at this point, I read a commentary that said, is David writing a prophecy or is he writing a history? Clear-cut reference to the crucifixion. They pierce my hands and feet. He's nailed to a cross by sinful men. He calls them a company of evildoers, dogs. Well, think of it again, just in phrases like this. The king of glory is nailed to a piece of wood. The king of kings and lord of lords, nailed by wicked sinners to a cross. What great love he must have for his people. To endure this. Verse 17. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Now this isn't a reference to Jesus. I can count all my bones. It's not a reference to Jesus being emaciated and thin. Right? Like a lot of like art, art you'll see from the, the second commandment violations. You'll see from medieval times of Jesus being crucified. Right, you can see he's very thin and emaciated, and he usually has some kind of loincloth on. No, what's being described here, I can count all my bones. They, they divide my garments and they cast lots for my clothing, and everyone stares and gloats at me. Jesus is talking about his nakedness on the cross. Consider the humiliation of our Lord. Stripped naked and dying on a piece of wood and people looking upon his nakedness and mocking him. Wicked Roman soldiers gambling for his clothing. Right? Consider this, they counted him as worthless, but maybe the clothes would be worth more than the man. 
because he's nothing to them. The shame and humiliation that the Lord endured. And yet he was stripped of his clothing so that we might be clothed with his righteousness. But then the Lord Jesus offers up another petition to God. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. He cries out once again for God to rescue him. He's saying, do something so that my enemies do not get final victory over me. Do something to vindicate me as your son. Do something. Don't let them win. Vindicate me. Glorify yourself. But then something happens. Something happens, we know that, because in the next line, verse 21b, the tone shifts to glory. It shifts to praise. He says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Christ triumphantly declares, I have been rescued. God rescues His Son. Now we know that Jesus Christ died in order to atone for the sins of His people. But as the psalmist says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. You will not abandon Him to the grave. God did not abandon His Son to the grave. He raises Him from the dead. I believe that's what this is referencing. You have rescued me. You've resurrected me. You've vindicated me. He's answered the prayers and cries of Christ from verses 1 through 21. He's answered Him. And Jesus then in glory praises God the Father for this rescue and resurrection. In verse 22, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And Jesus' brothers are those who come to him by faith. Right? The people of God. His church. He says, I will praise your name amongst my people, amongst my church, my brothers. The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus Christ is the firstborn among many brothers. Right? So that's us, those who have come to Him by faith. He's saying, I will praise you. I will give glory to the Father among my people so that they will praise Him as well for His goodness and holiness and righteousness and what He has done through me in this action. I will praise Him. He's vindicated and He worships. Now in verse 23, the voice of the psalm changes. Right? It changes from first person Right, I, me, my, to second person, you, he, him, right? I'm not saying that for just to be a nerd or anything, but this leads me to believe that after prophesying these things about the Messiah, King David himself begins to, uh, begins to speak. He begins to take over. It's his voice now in verse 23 to the end and not Christ anymore. And King David himself begins to praise God and declare what kind of result that the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is going to bring. And this is where just glory all over the place in the end of this psalm. Verse 23 and 24. First thing David says, You who fear the Lord, praise Him. Praise Him, all you offspring of Jacob. Glorify Him and stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. And we know this, the church is the Israel of God, is what Paul says in Galatians. We are the Israel here. We are the spiritual descendants of Jacob who are called to praise God for what He has done. Stand in awe of Him. Why? For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And He has not hidden His face from Him, but He has heard when He cried to Him. 
So David's calling us, the people of God, to worship God, to praise God, because he has not despised the affliction of the afflicted, or the afflicted one, Jesus. Right? He's not hated Christ, though Christ suffered as a sinner, but praise God, because God has vindicated the Messiah and has heard and answered his cries. And then King David, in verse 25, himself begins to join in on the praise of God for what he has done in Christ. He says, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. So King David is saying, I myself am worshiping for what God is promising to do in the future. I worship him. And David then goes on to to declare the significance and future results of what Jesus has accomplished. He says, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. So what King David says here is that the afflicted or the poor or the meek, spiritually speaking, right, the spiritually afflicted who recognize their position, those who seek him, those who look to Jesus in faith will be satisfied. He says they will eat and be satisfied. And they will live forever. He says, may your hearts live forever. That they will be saved from their sin and find the satisfaction for their sin in Jesus Christ. He's saying all those in the world who look to Him will be saved. They will live forever. And this salvation will not be only for Israel, but for the nations. Right? That people will hear and remember what God has done in Christ. And they will turn to Him and be saved. Right? Similar to what Isaiah says, or what God says through Isaiah rather. Look unto me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. This is a prophecy of the Gentiles coming in and being saved. This isn't just for ethnic Israel. And what I love about this, to go back, he says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. This is a certainty. They will do it. Christ will save his people. So he says they shall worship. They shall know you. That means that this atonement wasn't some broad, general, vague atonement that merely made salvation possible for sinners. No, this was a definite atonement and God will save his people. They shall know him. They shall turn to him. Christ is our surety of salvation. His people will be saved. They will come to know Him. God will build His church with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. The church will be built. And all people, rich, poor, healthy, sick, shall bow before Jesus Christ for what He has done. Everyone will bow to Him. He will receive honor as the Lamb slain for sinners. He will receive the glory due to His name. All will bow before Him. And David then brings this psalm to a close. He says, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. So he says, posterity 
shall serve him. We know it was a shame back in the time whenever Christ walked the earth for, for a man, 33-year-old man, to die unmarried with no children. It would have been a reproach and a scorn on him. But what does David say? He will have a posterity. Posterity will serve him. The King James says, a seed shall serve him. He will have a family. And those who come after him shall serve him. He will be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He will have a family. And what Jesus Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection, David says, will be proclaimed to the coming generation. From generation to generation until the end of time. That his church, his posterity, will live to declare it. And what will they declare? That he has done it. That's what his posterity will declare. He has done it. That the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished salvation for sinners. Furthermore, this is what we're going to be proclaiming for all of eternity. This doesn't end whenever Christ returns. We continue to proclaim glory to the Lamb slain. Glory to Christ for saving us. This is our song for all of eternity. This is what is proclaimed. Not that man did it, because man could not save himself. It's not by any works of obedience on our behalf whatsoever, but we proclaim that Jesus Christ has done it. What's astounding here is the Hebrew says, it is finished. That's what the Hebrew says. To the people of God will declare that salvation is achieved and that Jesus finished it. We will declare His righteousness. He has done it. And all praise will be to Christ. All praise to Christ for the salvation of His sinners. So this psalm is an especially important piece of Scripture for us. A thousand years before the Son of God came, this was penned to tell us of His suffering and the subsequent glories. This text gives us the big picture of the work of Christ and his greatness throughout the world. But a sermon is not a sermon unless you have application. So what are we going to do with this? I have just three things briefly for us to consider. And these aren't all connected either. First point of application. To those of you who are currently in the midst of suffering, and I know that we have you here, you, might find, you may find yourself thinking from time to time, God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so, so far from me? I cry to you in the daytime and in the nighttime, and you won't listen to me. They mock me. I feel like I don't know you. Where have you gone? Why have you forsaken me? I want you to look at this psalm and know that Christ was forsaken by God so that you would never be. He was forsaken that you would never be forsaken. So the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you, would be yours in Him. Know that as you suffer. Christ was forsaken that you would never be forsaken. And let me encourage you, as you suffer, look to the example of Christ found in this psalm. He prayed. He continued to trust. He continued to declare God's faithfulness. He continued to, to, to praise God for His goodness, to declare the holiness of God. He praised Him through it all. I encourage you to do the same. 
and know that God works his glory and our good through even the worst suffering and the Lord crucified is our proof. Second point. And this one was for me, if for no one else. Sometimes I think that we let the cross become a cold doctrinal formula. What happened on the cross? Jesus suffered the wrath of God in my place. And we say it just like that. Of course, Jesus suffered and bore the white-hot wrath of Almighty God. It's no big deal. Like it's a commonplace thing. That's how we treat the atoning work of Christ sometimes. Sure, it's just a given. Look at this psalm and see with the eye of faith. See the suffering of your Savior. Behold Him in His loneliness, in His nakedness, in His suffering, in His God-forsakenness, in His being encircled by enemies, in His being scoffed and mocked. See what happened. If you do this, I guarantee you, you will not have cold affections toward Christ. Once you see Him on the tree, it'll make you hate the sin that put Him there. It'll push you to holiness. It'll push you to appreciate just what a cost it was for Christ to purchase our salvation. So may it never be said of us that we were cold or indifferent towards the work of Christ on the cross for us. And my last point. I want to encourage all of you to let the ending of this psalm serve as an exhortation. Right? A call to action. Let it push you to proclaim Christ. Do what King David said that the redeemed of Christ would do. Praise Him and proclaim His righteousness. That's what He said we're going to do. That's what the redeemed of Christ do, is proclaim from generation to generation to a people yet unborn the righteousness of Christ and the fact that He has saved sinners in His cross. Go proclaim that. Declare the work of Christ to all people so that all the families of the earth might serve the suffering Savior. Go declare what He has done. We know that Christ has accomplished salvation, but the the means by which people will be converted, God has ordained, would be the posterity of Christ declaring the work of Christ. So let us go out and tell people that the Lamb of God might receive the full reward for His suffering. May Christ receive all praise, honor, and glory as the Lamb of God for sinners slain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your Son to die for us, for choosing us before we were born to be recipients of so great a salvation. Lord Jesus, we thank you for living in our place, being sinless in our place and suffering the wrath of God in our place on that cross. Holy Spirit, we thank you for applying the work of Christ to our hearts, for regenerating us and letting us see the beauty of Christ in his gospel. Lord Jesus, we see your humility in this psalm and the fact that you would suffer at the hands of your creation, in order to save people that hate you. 
is astounding, and it's something that we can't fathom, and I don't know if we ever will be able to, but Lord, I pray that you give us a greater appreciation for what you've done. Lord, forgive us for being cold and indifferent. Forgive us for not telling people that Christ has done it. Lord, bless us and help us to see We thank you so much for saving us. We praise your name now and forever. Amen.